Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. You've probably decided that since there is a podcast today, that I must be feeling better. And that's true. I'm feeling much better, although I am by no means 100%. I was wiped out with something last week. I've actually been sick since before Easter. It's really annoying. I About Thursday before Easter, I came down with a cold and really had a terrible sore throat. I felt bad all Easter weekend. Then I sort of started making a recovery that week and was able to go down to Cincinnati and speak at the King's Domain event down there. We had a great time. It was a great event. And then the day after I got back, I actually started feeling much worse again. I think I picked up a second virus and was really incapable of doing almost anything all last week. I really felt terrible. And uh, I'm still not uh, 100%. I picked up an eye infection, too. So I, I'm, I've got an eye infection that I'm going to be treating for the next week. So uh, hopefully I don't get any more sicknesses. We had awesome weather up here, too, last week. It was like almost 80, sunny. Uh, this week is going to be more like 50. Uh, and I won't be able to uh, go sit outside at lunch somewhere uh, and take care of that. But anyway... I'm back in business and hope to be back to a regular schedule this week. So thanks for bearing with me. With Colin Hansen's great new book on the intellectual and spiritual formation of Tim Keller coming out, there's been a lot of focus on him and his ministry and his development. And so I wanted to give a little bit of a complimentary uh, podcast Looking at an aspect of Kathy Keller's life, maybe not her history entirely, but her life, that hopefully sheds a little light on her. She doesn't necessarily get uh, the billing that he does, obviously, although she was really in many ways a full partner in everything that he did and is very talented, very smart in her own right. Now, the Kellers uh, are probably the leading exponent uh, in the evangelical world of what's called the thin complementarian position. And by the way, for those of you who don't know Tim Keller, he is an extraordinarily influential Presbyterian minister who started a church called Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City in 1989. It grew into a 5,000-person megachurch. He's written best-selling books and has really been the most decisive influence on how evangelicals attempt to do church in uh sort of gentrified areas of big cities. But they're the leading exponent uh, of uh, what's called the thin complementarian gender system today. So evangelicals sort of have two major systems of gender theology. One is called egalitarianism and the other complementarianism. And egalitarianism is basically the feminist position, and it holds that Men and women may have some kind of ineffable differences between them. There may be some complementarity between them. But nevertheless, men and women are functionally identical. And, you know, they can each do any role in society, in the church, in a home. And basically, they are essentially 50-50 in the home. There's, the men is not the head of the home in their, in their theology. The complementarian gender theology, a little more complex uh, and that there's more diversity of views within it, but basically holds men and women are created equal in the image of God, but have complementary roles uh, in the world at some level. Uh, in, and in particular, they all essentially agree that women cannot be pastors or elders, and that, and that the man is the head of the home in some form. 
then they diverge on, uh, you know, whether there's any sort of distinctions beyond that. The, th the thick complementarians, as they're called, tend to view, have a more substantive vision of gender differences. The thin complementarians tend to take a very, very narrow view interpreting the Bible passages about husbands as that of the home and and a male-only pastorate as narrowly as they possibly can. And that's basically the Kellers. They're in this complementarian camp, but they've adopted an extremely narrow definition. Basically, if there's no ironclad, no wiggle room proof text that says a woman can't do something, then she can do something. Everything that's not explicitly uh, for uh, forbidden is permitted, essentially, and it's a stance that I call absolute biblical minimalism as a hermeneutic. And maybe Kathy Keller may be the origin of this phrase. She's the one that I, I first heard it from, this idea of a woman can do anything that an unordained man can do. That's kind of the mantra uh, that they have there. So a lot of people like to give them grief over this system, that they're sort of a little bit sellouts, that they're a little bit trying to square the circle and accommodationist with New York City and... Uh, all, all of that stuff, and I'm not going to debate any of that stuff now that here they're there. It's not to be substantive, but what I want to do is point something out, which is that long, starting long before they ever got to New York City, Kathy Keller made tremendous personal sacrifices in order to align her life with this gender theology and has continued to essentially absorb significant pain year after year to essentially rep and defend it. And so this is not the actions. These are not the actions of someone who has adopted something out of any sort of a cynical basis. Uh, you know, as far as I can tell, Jay genuinely believe it. She genuinely believes it. Uh, and it's not just, uh, again, it's not just some pose because this is something that has cost her personally. And this goes back to the Nassim Taleb skin in the game principle. Do you have skin in the game on your position? Those are the people we should treat as serious. And undoubtedly, Kathy has had tremendous skin in the game on her gender theology in ways that, candidly, I don't think people have appreciated or really thought much about. So I just wanted to highlight them to help you maybe appreciate some of what she's done and the decisions she's made over the years treat myself to a, a sip of coffee there. Now, the first thing to understand is that here's an obviously smart and talented person who was raised in essentially a gender-neutral, second-wave feminist-style home. And so here's how she describes her upbringing in the chapter that she wrote in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. So I will just read a short passage from it. She says, if a child of the 50s can be said to have raised, be raised gender neutral, my siblings and I were. My mother was one of the only college-educated women among her acquaintances. I had grown up not even considering whether I was the equal of any boy. It just never occurred to me to divide the world into boys and girls, except when it came to restrooms. So in some ways, the whole feminist movement was a terrible shock to me. You mean, I thought there are women who have been mistreated, abused, exploited, marginalized, made to feel inferior? The proposed cure revealed to me that I had been oblivious to the disease. Uh, now, uh, 
we, we can analyze this. We like, I don't want to go into too much detail but here. Her mother had a college degree. So that right there tells you that her mom was probably pretty smart. Okay. And came from a very interesting home herself that her own parents would want to encourage her to have a degree that she would want to pursue a degree uh, at that time. So we see Kathy probably inherited some genes for intelligence there. Uh, gives you a sense that she comes from a background that's, uh, you know, highly educated and smart. And she was basically raised to believe she could do anything, right? That there were no artificial limits on her on account of her gender. So coming into this, she's not like she's someone who's raised in this rural fundamental fundamentalist environment or something like that. Here's somebody who's been raised in essentially a leading edge, dare I say, bleeding edge type household um, in the 50s. I think the feminist, uh, what was it, the, um, what was Betty Friedan's book that came out in the 50s? Whatever it was, uh, she, uh, you know, this, this stuff didn't really get going, second wave feminine, really until after the 50s. But she's sort of uh, in it uh, before it did. And, uh, and anyhow, um, it, you know, so, so she came from a feminist background. Here's someone who came from and was marinated in a feminist background. And so she had to essentially go against in adopting this complementarian system later in life, her personality, her upbringing, and her inclination. So she has to sort of reverse course. And then she had been in essentially a mainline Presbyterian church and was in seminary with Tim in the 70s, pursuing her Master's of Divinity degree. When she encountered this gender, complementarian style gender theology and became convinced that women were not eligible to be in ministry. Now, keep in mind, at the time, she is in college spending three years of her life and paying good coin to get a degree whose purpose is to give her the professional qualification to become a minister. That's why you get an MDiv. Her, in the middle of this process, coming to the conclusion that women cannot theologically become pastors would be like someone who's halfway through medical school coming to the conclusion that, uh, you know, they theologically are not allowed to be allowed to become a doctor. The whole point of going to medical school is to become a doctor. And while getting an MDiv is not totally worthless if you're not going into ministry, the reason you get your MDiv is that is the degree that in the Protestant world is the educational credential, particularly, particularly in the Presbyterian world, that entitles you to be a minister. This is your, the, the sheepskin that you need. Just like you need your law degree, your Juris Doctorate to get, uh, to get a law or a Master's of Social Work, this is the professional degree to become a minister. So she's studying this degree and it's like, oh, I actually can't be a minister. So in a sense... There goes three years of my life that I just kind of flushed down the drain in the pursuit of this credential I can't use, oh, which I paid for. Now, of course, I'm sure she enjoyed it. She met Tim. She's getting married. It's not a complete loss, but she's basically having to say, uh, yeah, you know, I'm like really kind of spending years of my life and spending a lot of dollars doing something I'm not supposed to do. Okay, so she has to say reverse gears there. So she's now saying, okay, I got to back away from this whole feminist upbringing that I had. I now got to back away from my entire professional track that I envisioned and essentially write off at least some of the investment that I'm making right there. So that's a sacrifice. And then she had been under care from her uh, 
uh, presbytery. Uh, and uh, so that basically you could, you could be taken under care by your, your presbytery in the Presbyterian church if you're going to be a minister in school. And, and you often get some benefits for that. So she, sometimes you get a reduction in tuition and things like that. But basically, she's not only going to school. The key is she was going through the process to become an ordained minister in the Presbyterian, the Northern Presbyterian Church at that time. So when she decides that she, oh, I can't be a, a, an ordained minister because uh, I'm a woman and the Bible doesn't believe that, she then has to go explain back home to this presbytery uh, in Pittsburgh that she's withdrawing from ordination and why. So she has to go give an account of herself. And it may have been at this time, Pittsburgh may have been the largest presbytery in the world uh, at that time and was being sort of um, uh, roiled with a debate over women's ordination uh, themselves. And uh, again, this was sort of the mainline denomination. There's a lot of people in there who have essentially the feminist position. And so this is what she wrote about going back to tell them that she is dropping out of the ordination process for the Presbyterian Church. And I guess this is while she's in cemetery. And this is in a, a short monograph she wrote called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, which is 250 or something on Kindle. Uh, so I actually recommend reading it. She said, I was at that time officially under care of my church's session. The session in a Presbyterian church is the board of elders that runs it. And about to proceed to the next step by becoming a candidate under care of the Pittsburgh Presbytery. I had to notify my advisor and several committees of the change in my views and status. Questioned about them from the floor of the night I came before the presbytery for the position of commissioned church worker, I was booed and hissed by about half of the 350 pastors and elders attending. The presbytery was dividing, divided on this issue, and I became the unintentional flashpoint of a long-simmering debate. The meeting degenerated into a circus, after which my pastor, Ray Pearson, said to me on the way home, what am I going to tell the elders about tonight? Okay, so you can see that she not only has to go against her inclinations, she not only has to kind of write off this investment she's making in her MDiv, she has to show up in front of 350 people, um, and half of them are going to kind of pour out scorn on her as she's saying that I'm not going to pursue ordination anymore because I don't believe that women can be ordained. And so she had to go. And this is just an example. The first, uh, I think, on record that we have of her having to take a pounding, just take a beating uh, on account of this. So it's certainly not going to be the last time, as, as we'll find out. So she has to go endure uh, this ordeal. She can't just send in a letter. She can't just click withdraw on the online form like maybe we could today. Uh, there's a process for everything in the Presbyterian Church. So she had to go through this process. And, um, you know, the, the quote speaks for itself. Then she graduates. She marries Tim. And they go off to minister at a church in Hopewell, Virginia, where he's going to be the pastor of the church. And this is where they're sort of uh, careers diverge a little bit because up until then, you know, they've both been college students. They've both been seminary students. They're kind of living, again, a little bit of a gender-neutral world, a little bit of gender-neutral roles themselves. Now he's the pastor and she's a stay-at-home mom. I'm not going to read the passage, 
But she talks about this in the meaning of marriage where Tim grabs his briefcase and goes off to work on day one and she's standing at home in the kitchen going, well, now what do I do? And Hopewell is not exactly one of the world's garden spots. It certainly wasn't at that time. It's about half an hour from Richmond. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, rural or anything. It, it wasn't super remote, but it was blue collar. It was industrial. It was poorly educated. So most likely, you know, this is not a high stimulation environment for someone like Kathy, who's used to being from a childhood you know, and it's sort of an intellectual milieu. And uh, I'm sure that she played some roles in, in the church, but they probably weren't exciting roles. You know, probably the proverbial, you know, baking cookies for, you know, some church event or talking to people she wasn't particularly like had that much in common with. Now, of course, she had three kids there. And so she was in kind of in that early childhood phase. And of course, that took up all of her time. But nevertheless, you know, this was a practical real life um, skin in the game moment again. And she's like, I actually am now not in ministry. If she had gone through with the or with ordination, if she'd gone through, gotten her, she got her MDiv, she could have pursued ordination. She could have pursued a call in Richmond. Hey, maybe I'll try to become like an intern pastor or, you know, an assistant or associate pastor at some Presbyterian church in Richmond. She could have pursued some sort of ministry position in, in the in the area, there was nothing stopping her from trying to, trying to become that if she had wanted to do that, if they were going to be the power couple in ministry. But by stepping back, she essentially reduced herself to essentially housewife status in this, again, blue collar, not very highly educated, not very highly exciting kind of place and stayed there for nine years. And then, of course, she raised kids, a very valuable thing to do. I'm not saying she did nothing or she made nothing of it, but this is another example of the sacrifice she had to make because it becomes very tangible at that point that, like, he is now moving forward in his ministry career. I don't necessarily have anything to do here. So, again, more skin in the game um, there. And so, you know, this is years before they've ever dreamed of setting foot in New York City. This is years of, of basically sacrifice, giving up on her background and inclination, turning away from that, you know, kind of writing off this investment in an MDiv to a great extent, having to go through this withdrawal process. Now you're down here in Hopewell. It's not very exciting. This is someone who sacrificed, okay, people. She sacrificed a lot in order to say, this is what the Bible teaches on gender roles. You know, I didn't make that kind of sacrifice. I can tell you that. I didn't have to give up something like that. So I think we ought to recognize and commend the extent to which she genuinely believed this. Nobody makes these kind of sacrifices if they don't believe what they're saying. The skin in the game demonstrates uh, that she believes. And of course, later, uh, you know, she plays a key role in starting uh, Redeemer and she sort of takes on a secondary role or, or a different role there that uh, is very common uh, for complementarian pastors' wives, which is she became the designated punching bag when it comes to gender theology. So what you see is that not all, but a lot of these complementarian pastors, that whenever it comes to preaching on submission, female submission in the home or church, they have to they wheel out their wives to help, you know, present that part. 
And so, again, we see the Kellers doing that. The, the book, The Meaning of Marriage, that they wrote, it's almost all written in Tim's voice, but there's one chapter, this chapter on submission, that's written in Kathy's voice. Because she's like, okay, I'll take that one. I'll go rep the unpopular parts. You get to talk about the glorious vision of, you know, marriage is an image of Christ and the church and all this stuff. You can, you can talk about all the elevated stuff, and I'll go deliver the unpopular message. So that's kind of the role she's had to take on in terms of delivering unpopular messages. And then not only does she have to kind of like deliver the message, she's also got to deal with all the women who are unhappy. So whenever women want to come and they complain, it's like, okay, Kathy, you got to go talk to them. You have to go explain this to them. And so over the years, she has had to essentially endure conversations with literally hundreds of people often saying incredibly over-the-top things about their gender theology in order to essentially be, uh, I think, the face of Redeemer on this issue. It's not entirely clear here, and I'm not saying Tim never had this conversation or nobody else ever had these conversations, but very clearly she did. And so again, I want to read a few clips here from uh, Jesus, justice, and gender roles. Now, this is not one passage. Uh, these are several different things, okay? It sort of sounds a little bit like one flow, so I don't want you to assume it's all one thing. But this will just give you a flavor of what she's had to go through in terms of listening to complaints from women uh, about gender stuff. I cannot count... I Excuse me, I'll start again. I cannot number the occasions, hundreds by now, on which I have been asked to re-examine my convictions on this subject. I have heard this cry from women with whom I'm having a quiet discussion and from women who are weeping. I've heard it in small groups and I've had it shouted at me in large ones. While I understand the frustration from which this sentiment is born, it has nevertheless been my task at some point in our conversation to explain that no it is not primarily a justice issue, but first, a theological issue. The most recent occasion was when I spoke at my seminary, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, on the topic. A woman stood up during the Q&A session and, weeping, said the familiar words, But this is my life. This is not just a theological discussion. This is a justice issue. I don't remember what I actually said to her at the time. I hope it was more gracious than what I was thinking. Or one woman told me tearfully when she learned that Redeemer did not ordain women as elders or pastors, it was like finding out that your fiancé is a child molester. These are not moderate words that encourage continuing conversations. So you can give, this just gives you a sample. You know, week after week, for 30, 30 years or however long they were at Redeemer, she's just getting pounded and pounded and pounded and pounded. She's the designated punching bag basically having to absorb all this abuse uh, over the fact that uh, no matter how thin their complementarian may be, it's still too thick uh, for a lot of people. And this will give you a sense of some of the absolute over-the-top things that have happened. So when you, you add this up, I mean, here's somebody who's taken a lot of pain, okay? So she is, number one, uh, just tremendously personally sacrificed Again, in order to bring her life into alignment with this gender theology that she came to believe. She's got skin in the game. 
So that right there tells you that it's not just some fake thing. Nobody makes these kinds of uh, fake things in order to, you know, as some sort of a long-term cynical ploy. This is, you know, very serious years of sacrifice. And then she sort of, you know, you know, takes on this role, such in a punching bag where she takes on pain. And I mean, I mean, I don't think people probably realize like how much abuse, you know, from kind of women who didn't like what she had to hear. She's probably taken on over the years. So much of this probably occurred in sort of one-on-one discussions or small group discussions. It's not visible. It's not happening on MSNBC for the most part. She's not going out like Mark Driscoll, you know, would go out and, you know, he's, he's profiting from anti-fragility and the fray and all the controversy. You know, she's not even building a brand off of this controversy. She's just dealing with people on a day-to-day basis. And again, isn't even like being able to use it to get her Patreon going or something like that. So, you know, she's really just, you know, doing the work as they say. And again, you don't have to agree. I'm not asking you to agree with the Keller's gender theology. You know, I've said myself, I have substantive differences from them on another point. Uh, By the way, according to Colin Hansen's book, one of the interesting thing in Colin Hansen's book, they basically got their gender theology from Elizabeth Elliot. I would actually love to see a fuller treatment of that, but that does not surprise me at all. Um, but whether you agree with it or not is not the issue. The key is you don't have to agree. But her actions in walking her talk command respect, right? You and I, unless you're one of the rare people out there that I know have taken these beatings, you and I have not had anything close to this. So we need to recognize and respect the skin in the game that she showed. And this is one that I think a lot of people just don't get. Because again, putting the pieces together, you have to kind of pick pieces and parts from different writing that they've done over the years and sort of like realize like, yeah, she was raised in a feminist home. She was a feminist. She was an egalitarian. Oh yeah, she had to kind of walk away from the value of the MDiv and, and all that money in three years. Oh yeah, she had to actually go before this presbytery and had basically have, have them throw rotten tomatoes at her on the floor. Then she had to go spend nine years in this very unexciting place, uh, you know, while her husband is, you know, building a, you know, building, you know, apprenticing in his craft. You know, she's, you know, not apprenticing. She's watching him apprentice in the craft that she was previously thinking she was going to do and walked away from, you know, and then she spent 30 years kind of being a designated punching bag. And so we ought to, uh, you know, understand what she's gone through and sort of recognize and I think, you know, honor that uh, because it's not something most of us would want to do and frankly, not something that most of us have done. So just a little thoughts on Kathy Keller's skin of the game and I will talk to you next week.